This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. everyone, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast from Connie Nast Traveler. My name is Meredith Carey, and before we get started with this week's episode, my co-host Lolly and I wanted to let you know that we are heading to Los Angeles on May 17th for our next live podcast. We'd love to see you there. All of the details of who will be joining us and how you can attend will be in the show notes, so make sure to check it out. Back to this week's episode. In honor of Mother's Day, that's May 12th for those of you who haven't mailed your cards yet, we decided to do something a little different and interview moms, our moms, about their travels. First up is the dear Nikki Aracoglu, who was in town a few weeks ago to chat with Lale about the time she and her then-boyfriend rode a motorbike from London to Asia with stops in Europe and the Middle East along the way. I'll let Lale take it away. We left in mid-July 78, and we returned beginning of February 79. So you start off in London, which is where you were living, still live. Yeah. And where did you go from there? You packed up your bags, you got on the bike... Well, we packed up our bags and meant to have a very early start on our departure, but didn't actually leave till 6.30 in the evening because we forgot our passports and various things like that. Very, very organised. We drove down to Dover, went over to Ostend on the night crossing and then just got on the autobahns and drove as fast as possible um, to Yugoslavia, which was obviously still communist then under Tito. Went down the coastline to Dubrovnik and Kotor, up over the mountains. And we were very intent on getting to Istanbul because we felt that was where the real travelling would start, which was crazy in retrospect because we didn't spend enough time in places like Yugoslavia, which would have been great. So, yeah, over the mountains, we were sleeping in the tent on the side of the road because we didn't want to spend any money and finally got to Greece And we were going to stay in Thessaloniki for a few days, but there'd just been a massive earthquake. So we were advised to leave, which we did. So zooted along the coast and went to an island called Thassos. Spent about a week there, actually, um, just relaxing, because it's quite tiring on a motorbike when you're travelling hundreds of miles a day and then you're sleeping at the side of the road and all the rest of it. And then left Kavala and got to Istanbul that day, actually. We drove from very, very early in the morning um, and hit the Turkish border about half four, five in the afternoon, following the Ignatian Way, which was a wonderful old Roman road. I didn't realise it then because I was so ignorant when I was travelling. I knew nothing. And, and then, you were 22 at the time. Barely out of my teens. 
when you think back now, I would think, what a stupid person. At the time, you just didn't think. You just sort of went for it. We thought we were quite organised, actually, but we weren't. And uh, so I just want to say on an aside that when you're saying we, you're not talking about you and my da- my father. Oh, no, and it's not the royal we either. <laughs> it was me and my then boyfriend, um, Alistair, who I later married, but then we split up and then dad came into the, the scene. But we got to Istanbul that evening and it was a real, thinking back, it was a real culture shock because it was the first time out of Europe. And, you know, Istanbul traffic, as you know, is manic. And it was even then when there wasn't quite so much on the road. But we were enchanted. I mean, we saw a camel and thought, wow, this is amazing. We've, we've arrived. God, so you really were those Brits that had a, this stereotypical view of what the Middle East looked well, like. Well, also remember, this was the late 70s and the world was a very different place. Um, and I think a child of post-war Britain, you imbibe certain attitudes, however liberal and broad-minded you thought you were. When these attitudes were tested, you could actually have a big surprise and I certainly was so culture shock ensued Mm -hmm. but we spent about three and a half weeks in Turkey and it was fabulous because Istanbul I wrote in my diaries and I cringe when I look at it now I was disappointed (laughs) in Istanbul I mean it's ridiculous but I think it was because we were tired Um, I'd been bitten on my face by mosquitoes and had to walk around looking horrendous and it was just so full on. Um, but then we got out of the city, we went down the Aegean coast and we hit Izmir and went east through amazing archaeological sites, um, the most famous being Ephesus. But we then went further into Anatolia and we were visiting places like Aphrodisias, which I think is a big site now, but in those days was just wild and quiet and we were the only people there it was absolutely fabulous and we pretended we were gladiators coming out (laughs) into the stadium and all the rest of it but it was great that was the evening I met your dad because we drove the bike and fell off on the way because we went from a um, tarmac road to a gravel road and that was always the fear so came off locals had to pick us up because we were trapped under the wheels um, All the time your parents are just in Wales, oblivious to the fact that Thinking we're happening. on the train, but it was fine. And we arrived at a place called Pamukkali, which is a series of calcified sort of white cliffs and there's thermal springs there. And we wanted somewhere to stay the night, so I spotted this couple, a very beautiful woman and dad, um, who I thought had dyed hair. He and didn't, he didn't. it would be revealed. It was the light. And um, asked them for a you know, they knew anywhere to stay. So they recommended this little hotel and we camped in the garden and stayed there a couple of nights, I think. And then from then on, we sort of went south, hit the Mediterranean coast and then off to Adana. We were still sort of not relaxing. I look back and I think we had all this time, we had no fixed schedule at all. But there was this sort of desire to keep moving and get towards India as well. Because at that time in the late 70s, lots of people were doing the the trip to India. Do you think that you didn't appreciate the moments you were in because you were always kind of thinking of the next stop? I think it took a long time to relax. It wasn't really until we 
to Afghanistan, I think, that I really started to just think, we've got all day, we can do what we want. There's, there's no pressure to be anywhere. And I think it's part, in the West, you know, sort of from a child, you have to go to school, you have a timetable, you go to work, you have to be there by a certain time. It's just sort of embedded in your consciousness. It really did take some time to let that go. And so then you spent, was it two and a half weeks in Afghanistan? We got through to Afghanistan, which I just loved. I mean, it was wonderful. Partly because of the scenery, which was semi-desert mountains. Um, mainly because of the people who were just very, very hospitable. Um, I don't want to use the word proud because it sounds sort of patronising. but it's that sort of thing where you go to a country and you go, oh, the locals were so lovely. Exactly, but they had a dignity. They were the poor, it was the poorest country I'd ever been to and probably ever have been to. We did Herat, Kandahar, and then pitched up in Kabul, stayed in an amazing um, hotel. We were in a sort of shack in the garden, but it used to be the old British consul, I think. So it had high stone walls, beautiful green garden. Um, the bathroom inside was just this amazing marble sort of structure. that was, was fabulous. Kabul was tense and there was a curfew at night. We had to be back by 10 and the searchlights would then start because it was just before the Russians invaded. And one of the first questions um, I was asked often was, are you Russian? And it was, so good. It was, it was good to be a, a Brit. Which isn't always the case. Plus they'd beaten us in a very famous battle in the 19th century, so they, they felt good about that. <laughs> um, so we stayed in Kabul. Um, Alistair was really ill at one point in bed. And that's one of the things about travelling on that route, particularly the way we travelled. And because we were eating on the side of the road in cafes and what have you, you just had constant stomach problems. And it was one of the main topics of conversation when you met other people travelling. Um, I think that's, I mean, that still happens. When I was in Colombia, by the end of the week, everyone was just sort of comparing their toilet needs. Exactly. But we were in Kabul and the word went out that all the um, embassies were saying that the foreign nationals should leave the country because they obviously knew that the um, political situation was very tense. So we decided instead to buy bus tickets up to Bamiyan and Bandiamir, uh, which I am so glad we did. Uh, we left the motorbike in Kabul because we didn't want to risk damaging it and took this bus, which took most of the day through the mountains. The roads were just tracks and riverbeds, really. And we were in the middle of nowhere, the odd little village, where you wondered how on earth they could make a living up there and we arrived in Bamiyan and there was a selection of hotels they were called the Park Hotel the Mercedes Hotel but they were all mud huts with no bathrooms or anything by this stage Alistair was feeling really awful but the main attraction of going to Bamiyan were the two Buddhas carved into the cliffs which now sadly have been blown up by the Taliban anyway we did walk there and we did climb to the top. And there and was a picture of you sitting on the top? I, I, I did sit on the top. Of course, I didn't care about the damage I was doing to the Buddha at the time. But yeah, it was, it was just fabulous. And then the next day we went on to Bandiamir. And it's funny memory because 
even my diaries are a little bit hazy. Um, there were these amazing lakes, which was the reason to go to Bandiamir. But in my diaries, I refer to it as Bamiyan. I, I don't know, and I can't okay, actually, and I can't, up. and I can't actually remember. Um, so sometimes I think back to this trip, and I'm not sure what's truth and what's sort of hazy. Well, and also, when you're writing, not a lie, but it just sort of gets when you're lost. writing a diary, even if you don't have the intention for anyone to read it, sometimes you can. Mm. sort of construct it in a way that... Exactly. Well, I d certainly didn't uh, intend anyone to read my diaries because when I look back at what I wrote about people, it was appalling. <laughs> but I think it was a sort of outlet of frustration. Well, yeah, when, and also you know, it was you and Alistair stuck with each other every day. Well, that's the other thing, because on a motorbike, you are literally attached to each other physically all the time. And then you arrive somewhere, you're exhausted, you're filthy, we're always hungry... And you're still together, and there's nowhere you can go to escape. And then now, you sleep in a tiny tent. Did you come up with any tricks to sort of find moments when you can just have some peace by yourself or rouse, really? And one of us would stamp off in a rage for a while and then come back together. When you and Alistair said you were going on this trip, how did people respond? And did you have a different response than he did? It divided into two camps really there was, well there was one camp um that said oh gosh that sounds amazing which was the minority and then the other camp which was you're running away you'll never get a job when you come back you know all that sort of stuff which obviously we we ignored and yes there was a difference between well it was gendered really because it was all about oh you must really love Alistair in order to do this trip as though I hadn't thought about it myself and that it was a joint enterprise, um, an equal enterprise. And sadly, that's the case even today when I talk about it. People still react They're, in the same some, way. Some men still say that, and they're not old men either. And they're probably men who think that they're quite liberal and oh, open-minded. Yeah, exactly. They're like, oh, I, I'm a feminist, and then... But they come up with these things. But those were the, the sort of broad divisions... And then so from Afghanistan, you left Afghanistan and then you... Yeah, we left Afghanistan and whizzed through Pakistan um, in about two days. We did spend one night there camping outside the police station after they'd stopped us for our documents. We thought we'd ask them if it's a safe place. Oh, we stayed in Rawalpindi when we went over the border. And that was, you know, again, looking back, it makes my hair stand on end because we wanted to camp when India and Pakistan were one, Pakistan would have had things called tourist bungalows where uh, government officials, etc., would, on DAC bungalows, go and stay when they were touring the country. So we found one, but it was abandoned. It had been burnt down after Bhutto had been hung, I think, by anti-Bhutto people. But we pitched our tent, and then as it got dark, all these huge cars arrived, and this was a place where people walked around with sort of bandoliers of bullets and rifles on their shoulders and these massive cars turned up and we were in the middle of this alcohol trade going on and drugs I mean I don't know what was going on but there were about five guys all armed to the teeth and the whole thing was run by this sort of 14 15 year old boy with a pistol and 
you know, he was talking about trading diamonds and sapphires and this, and who knows how much was bullshit and how much was real, but they were certainly trading in alcohol because they insisted we share a bottle with them. <laughs> At which point you're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you, you don't want to offend anyone. In the end, we managed to say we were tired. We got an early start, so we hid in the tent. And I think we got up at, I mean, first light, we were out of there. And thinking back, it, ugh, you know, you think what could Scarpered. have happened. But we then sort of scarfed th- through Pakistan. It, the reason we didn't stay longer was the monsoon was still there and it was absolutely pouring with rain. Got to India and then we spent, oh, two and a half, three months in India. I did love Rajasthan. Um, Udaipur, Jaipur, even though there were quite a lot of tourists there, the architecture is fantastic. The colours are brilliant and you get a lot of semi-desert. You can drive out towards the Tar Desert and the women are wearing these amazing peacock colours and there are actual peacocks strutting around as well. So I like that sort of contrast. But India was great. I love the people, the food. And then you ended up going back to India I went, again and again. I, well, I went back um, just after Mrs. Gandhi had been assassinated, which was a great trip. And in that one, I just stuck to Rajasthan. But um, we spent time in Delhi. We went across to Varanasi. And that was a really difficult drive. But we went to um, a great place called Fatapur Sikri, which was outside Agra, which was a deserted city. I think it was... Emperor Akbar had built it and it only lasted about 50 years and I think they ran out of water or something. And looking back through my diaries the other day, I'd completely forgotten that we were taking photographs and a guy appeared and made a fuss and we told him to get lost. And then his friend appeared from around the corner holding this axe. And in my diary, I said, we left very quickly. (laughs) (laughs) It's endless... Endless near endless misses. Endless story. Endless yeah. near misses. But again, you just, I think at that age, I just thought, oh, we'll be fine. And I never worried about falling off the bike and maiming myself or even possibly killing myself. You know, reading back through all your diaries now, it must feel a little bit like reading the voice of a slightly different person. Well, two things I was thinking, because I, I was looking at them before I came to New York. Uh, one is how hard I was on myself at that age, um, probably quite hard on other people as well. And also you think, well, what did I learn from that trip? And I don't think at the time, obviously it was new experiences and things like that, but I think the benefit of the trip kicked in much later. Uh, It certainly broadened my outlook and all the rest of it, but that may not have been immediately apparent when when I came back. Do you think now if you did the same trip now, with all, so much more life experience, do you think you would be far more scared and nervous and overthinking about the decisions you were making? I think I would... Well, I'd certainly prepare more before I left. I mean, we were pathetic when I think back. But I think once you start doing it, everything, you just do it and get on with it. And what happens, happens, and you deal with it as it arises. Because if you overplan, you'll never do anything. Or you'll stay in one place because you sort of you feel you know what that place is. And I think the beauty of the sort of travelling I like to do is that you do, in a way, take a deep breath and you just go and you see what happens. 
And most of the time, things are fine. Most of the time, people are good, I think. Obviously, you have to be wary. And I think one mistake that you can make quite easily is because you're away, you drop your usual safeguards that you use at home and trust people too much or whatever it is. But yes, I, I would do it again, definitely. The Run for Revogue is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz, um, who should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah. that. We support that. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to level up? For me, it's my hiking boots, which have gotten me over some pretty tough terrain. And I'm not talking about my morning commute on the New York City subway. They've pushed me to go to far off places like trekking in the remote mountains in Patagonia, wildlife spotting amid the thick rainforests of the Amazon, and climbing through canyons in the Utah desert. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. There's an available panorama glass roof, 33-inch all-terrain tires, and multi-terrain select driving modes. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior means that wherever you go, you'll never go without. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium, Apple Card, or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our next conversation is between Meredith and her mum, Pam, who set the tone for Meredith's relationship to travel by always sharing stories about the time she moved abroad to South Africa. I'll let them go from here. So, mom, I have basically followed in your footsteps every step of the way. I got the same major as you at the same college, went on the same study abroad program. But the one thing I haven't done is move abroad. And you did that uh, right after college. Can you tell me a little bit about why you moved and what it was like to make such a huge life decision? Sure. I thought you were going to tell me you're going someplace. (laughs) (laughs) At the time, I didn't think it was a big deal. And people would tell me, oh, you're so brave. And I thought, well, this is fun. (laughs) I just, I think after semester at sea, I just always knew that I wanted to go abroad and then the opportunity presented itself. 
Well, and you were moving to South Africa at the time, um, yeah. which when you moved was still under apartheid. Was there anything about moving there during that time that worried you about moving there? It didn't worry me tremendously. Um, I mean, there were concerns and, and conversations with my friends there. But no, I wasn't worried for my safety there. Part of it was because there was a boy involved. So <laughs> there wasn't as, as really an option things, of where to go. That just kind of changes your perspective on a lot of things. Um, and, and, and it was the whole time I was there, I was learning. No, I mean, life, I mean, it sounds horrible when I say these things now, but, you know, life then, it was not very different in a lot of ways than living here um, for me, for the majority of the rest of the country. Yes, it was different. And, and I, I learned so much while I was there, though I had read a lot of books before I went. But no, it was always a, a concern. And I always kept up with what was going on and how things were changing. And um, with what I did while I was there, I got to see so much of the country that other people didn't get to see. Um, I worked in sports promotion, and I got to go into parts of the country that most people didn't get to see out in the remoter parts of uh, Zululand or or at the time. I don't know what it's called at the moment. Um, but just got to see some things. And the whole year was a learning experience. That probably in that year and that time of traveling, I learned so much politically and socially about how other people felt about the United States, which I, you know, you grew up in the States and you think everybody thinks you're wonderful or you used to. It just was, it's just different. It was a real learning time. I was, I was young. I was still a baby. I'm curious because so many of your closest friends today and people that you travel with the most today are women that you met while you were there. Mm -hmm. Um, And I know that when you and Moira went and did your big European adventure, um, you guys pretended to be Canadian. Uh, She she didn't. Well, she's got an accent. (laughs) She would say I would pretend to be South African, but I would just be quiet and let her be South African, her South African self and be quiet because at the time, this was 1985, there were a lot of things going on where as an American, you just wanted to be kind of quiet. It was enough that I just, you didn't want to advertise your nationality. And, and there were times I can remember confrontations on the train that Moira had with people because of being South African also. Um, So we would just kind of be be quietish. <laughs> we needed to be. Um, I'm curious on that trip, a lot of what you were doing was just word of mouth, like in traveling pre internet. How did that change your path and where you guys went when you were, were traveling um, around Europe? Yeah, well, you use travel books a lot more. But um, also, you know, we had friends in Greece, uh, a friend of Moira's that we stayed with. And uh, you just kind of went and there weren't as many people traveling also as there are now. So it was easy to kind of change your plans at the last minute. And we just kind of went where we wanted to when we wanted to and met people along the way and, and changed our mind by the people we met and where they were going and what sounded interesting and what we learned over, you know, 
dinner the night before. I'm curious because the way that I've been able to stay in contact with so many of the friends that I've met either while traveling or that I've traveled with um, because they're spread all over the place uh, is Facebook. And obviously you've kept in touch with a lot of the people that you traveled with and you found a lot of them. So what was it like keeping up with these women that were so important to your travel journey when you didn't have this like constant contact? It was letter writing. It was little thin airmail letters and really expensive phone calls. And I can still remember the first time I called Moira on her cell phone and she was in the grocery store. And that blew my mind that I could be speaking to her in the grocery store at the time. I mean, all of this seems so silly to you all today, but communication just wasn't the same. And and the same in, in going back to when I moved to South Africa, you know, it, you didn't have the internet. You You knew things, but I will say my South African friends, when they were in the state, one of their complaints is there was no news. We just, in our newspapers, they didn't print a lot of news about South Africa. Um, so most of what I learned, or a lot of it, was firsthand while I was there. You all have just so much more um, access to information. I mean, if you want to learn about a place, you just get on the Google. (laughs) um, You just Google it. When you look back at the travel that you did when you were younger and the steps that you took moving abroad for the year and then coming back to the Mm -hmm. U.S. but still traveling, like what advice you would give to like young Pam Carey about things she should do or not do or worry about and not worry about along the way? I would tell her to be a little bit more like you, a little braver, um, because I could have extended my stay in South Africa or done more in that way and not felt that I needed to come back and fit back into regular, normal life. I could have kept going. But, I mean, I'm really happy with the way my life turned out. So, But just to be brave and not be afraid and go more places and see more things and meet more people. How do you feel about me and Drew both doing Semester at Sea because of the example that you set? Well, I was super excited you wanted to do it. You could have done anything else you wanted to do too. (laughs) But um, no, I just think that, I think any opportunity you have to see the world, to meet people and to learn how they're different and how how similar everybody is, but uh, to celebrate the differences. And uh, it's, it's I'm thrilled you got to do it. I'm super happy. Is there anywhere that you have not been that you are dying to go? I haven't been to South America at all. I'd love to go to Argentina. I'd love to go all over South America. Um, I've been to the north of Africa, the south of Africa, but not the middle of Africa. Uh, There are lots of places. I haven't been to Australia. Um, I'd like to go places and spend more time and see them in a more relaxed fashion. Do you feel like you could ever convince Dad to move somewhere? Temporarily, yes. Yes. I mean, I, I think it would be fun to go. And through my travels, whether it was semester at sea or when I've been in Europe before and met couples who were renting an apartment for a month in a place and using that as their home base or 
um, I met a couple in Sri Lanka who had spent a, a month in Australia and then were working their way around the world. I don't know if I can talk them into that. But um, I think I could talk him into spending long periods of time places. We have a little time before this happens. Do you feel like there's any you can like distill it down to maybe even just like way your personality changed after that year, two years of traveling and, and moving abroad? And it's with travel period, you open yourself to different ideas and different people and not assuming you understand everything from afar. You have to talk to people and, and there are lots of different stories and people have different experiences, but you can't sit in your country and, and judge how something else is. For our other mother-daughter interview, we tapped Traveler's social media manager, Gerald Lippi, and her sister, regular contributor and women who travel regular, Jordi Lippi-McGraw, to talk to their mom, Suzanne, about her travel style has changed over the years and why it was so important for her to impart a love of travel on her daughters. We'll start with Jordi. So, Mom, last year you came with me to Antarctica. Yes. And I was five months pregnant. Correct. And you recently reminded me that when you were seven months pregnant yourself with Gerald that you climbed Mount Masada in Israel. So as you could tell on the trip, a lot of people were hesitant about me being on the cruise ship and doing a lot of the things. Did you experience a similar thing when you were in Israel being very pregnant? First of all, I lied about how pregnant I was (laughs) to get to do a lot of the stuff, like get on the airplane and stuff like that. But I did experience a lot of stuff. They mostly screamed at daddy, like, how how can you let this woman climb this mountain? And he goes, I can't tell her not to kind of thing. So, And is that something that you hope to pass on to me? Or did you not even think anything of it by having a daughter who decided to go to Antarctica five months pregnant? Just part of it all, you know, it's just part of it. I, I hope that you guys learn to love travel as much as I did and, and try things even and not let something like a pregnancy stop you. Were you nervous at all about me traveling pregnant to Antarctica? Not at all, because I did it. And the, I mean, I didn't go to Antarctica, but I but I traveled extensively pregnant and traveled in other extreme. It, when, when we were in Israel, the extreme temperatures were like well over 100 degrees climbing a mountain. So I knew that you could handle the cold being pregnant. Did you get more adventurous with your later kids? Because I was a third kid, and you were like, well, if we, you know, if this one turns out not so great, it's <laughs> we got two others. not that big a deal. <laughs> yeah, it's like, you know, at least I have a good story to tell about it. <laughs> I've always been adventurous. I think part of it was being brought up in a military family where we moved every two years, and I lived in Europe. I lived all different places, and so kind of traveling was always just the I was brought up traveling. It was like second nature. It was you didn't even think about it. But there's a difference when you're traveling because, you know, you're forced to by a family and then going out and seeking your own adventures. Did you did that spark something in you when you were younger and did you go on other adventures by yourself not with your family as yeah, a child? My first trip alone was when I was 15 and I went to Europe using the book called Europe on $5 a day. Mm-hmm. I did meet up with my cousin and brother there, but I did travel at age 15 by myself to Europe. And your parents were cool with that? They certainly were. <laughs> Again, what number kid were you? You kind of give up after a while. <laughs> yeah, you're in the middle. Yeah. I was I was the middle of nine kids, so they, it's like you lose one or two. It's, it's, yeah. 
you kind of forget yeah, about right. it. Not that I'm bitter. No, but, at all. but I, w- I was gone from home at least eight weeks on that trip, and they never once checked in. There was no cell phones or anything like this, so they let me go and had no idea, you know. And I kind of learned how to go through different countries, how to get on public transportation, even though I didn't speak the language, and I figured it out. And that's what I would hope to pass on to my kids is that they would try things, even if they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. Just roll with it and learn. Did your approach to travel change before and after having children yourself? No. Seeing things, experiencing things was always very, very high on my priority list, no matter what it was, you know. So it's just been an innate part of me. And then when we got, when I got married and daddy loved to travel, so it was a, it was a no-brainer that we were going to just continue. And, we, and the one thing that we did was we always took our kids with us. We rarely, rarely went someplace alone because I wanted you guys to, you know, to experience it and taste new foods, hear new accents, see different clothing, you know, all of it. Was that a conversation that you and daddy had? Yes, absolutely. We had a definite plan about that. And he knew also that I would enjoy my trip much better watching my children see things for the first time more than just me seeing it for the first time. To watch your kids in a state of awe over something, whether it's a natural phenomenon or whether it's a a beautiful piece of artwork, is just priceless. I mean, traveling had to change after having children, though. You know what? You, you, You have to not be so fixated on a timeline. You have to be prepared for a sick kid. You have to be prepared for all kinds of things. And you really, really have to be laid back and just kind of roll with it. Because if you have kids, some of them are napping, some of them need, are hungry. You just, have, you just have to learn to be very, very flexible. These are things I'm learning now with the, and the 10-month-old. I know. <laughs> and it's, it's very doable. You just have to put in, you just have to agree to the fact that it's going to be challenging at some points, but the fun uh, is far outweighs any of the hassles of it. Yeah, it's on, I honestly don't remember you and Daddy taking a lot of trips alone. No, we we always we always went with you. Yeah, right. I mean, when, how old was I when we went to Europe? You went on you went on a trip every year from the time you were born. Yeah, like my passport photo when yes. I was a baby. <laughs> I remember that passport photo. And now you can, you can see mom's hands in it holding you up. Yeah. <laughs> I think we have that somewhere. I do. I have it in my safety deposit box. Don't mm-hmm. worry. But, <laughs> Not worried. <laughs> no, but her, Just your first steps were in a foreign country. Yeah. The first time you walked was in a foreign country. So that is a fantastic memory for me. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you're too young, too young to remember it, but it's for a parent to watch that, it's amazing. Yeah, and the first video I saw since Daddy passed away was him holding me at the Western Wall. Yeah. In Israel, yeah. yeah. And that's that's when you first walked. Yeah. That was all that same week. Mm-hmm. And I lost, I remember losing a tooth in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After daddy, but daddy knocked it out. Yeah, yeah. Lost is a is a, a loose, loose term. term. Yeah. So what we had to do was because you still believed in the tooth fairy, we had to figure out how to get Spanish money into your room, and we were in separate rooms. You didn't put it in my room. No, we put no, it in your shoe. You put it in my shoe, and, and said we that told that's you how Spanish tooth, tooth fairies work. So you learn to adapt to situations. You know, it's like the tooth fairy has to come. I must have not been very bright. <laughs> you were a little kid. Yeah, I was. And yeah, by the for the record. My dad did throw a buoy buoy at my face because apparently that's how you play with a six-year-old child. You were younger than that. 
and I was losing teeth that young. Well, you got Sorry, well, this not, is no, uninteresting not, to most other people. <laughs> it was knocked out of you. You didn't lose that's it. That's true. That's true. I had a tooth that was forced out of me in Spain. <laughs> but but the point the point being is you the tooth fairy. So you're in Spain. How do you adapt that to have your child still believe in the tooth fairy? So we we figured it out that they put money in shoes. What advice would you give to your younger self in terms of travel? I wish I had done more because there's so many, I, I'm, I'm older, you know, I'm older now. When I was younger, I probably had more energy and, and I could have probably done more. You know, as you get older, it's, a, it's just a little bit more challenging. Not, not, not me right now, I'm talking about like 10 years from now, mm-hmm. as opposed to my 20-something year old, where I felt like I had all the energy in the world. But I mean, you went with me to Antarctica. You took Paige, our older sister, to the Arctic. And we went tornado chasing. We went tornado chasing. <laughs> you guys drove cross country. We drove cross country. Yeah, we've done some in a fun. Mini Cooper. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, bringing all of those points up is is interesting. You you did make a point to to travel with each of us. There's you know three, always, three daughters right. individually, and you, to do that often. Yes, we traveled a lot as a family, but yeah. you also made a point to travel with us separately. Yeah. Why is that so important? Well, because I wanted that one-on-one time. I took So sometimes it was you alone, and sometimes it was two of you, or you know whatever, but just... To what have are a, some of your favorite memories from those trips? Oh my God. Which name one? Pick one. Um, how about when we went tornado chasing? Okay, that was freaking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, why did you indulge? I mean, that was something that was such a random okay, thing he, for he, a child he, to no, ask he, to do. Here's Most the thing. parents say, no, right. that's dangerous. And you were like, hey, yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> because probably I was tapping into my inner child by saying, yeah, I would love to be your age and go see tornadoes. So I... I prolonged my adolescence through you guys <laughs> by living, you know, by as I could give the excuse I'm taking my daughter to to learn something educational, but we're going to have a lot of fun. <laughs> it was the movie that came out. Oh, Twister. Twister came Is out. Is that what it was called? Wait, it, I don't know. And then there, there was a... Helen Hunt? The, yeah. There was a bus. Something like that. <laughs> there, there was a bus that they showed that was called Tornado Chasers, Storm Chasers. So immediately, this was just when the internet was starting, I began... I been Googling things for a long time. I think this was be- probably before Google. It was before oh, Google. I was in high school, so yeah, this so had it was to before be in, in the early 2000s. But, but I used the computer to track down things, just like the trip to the Arctic with Paige. There was there was no websites. There was nothing to go to. I just made phone calls to people to ask if they would do it. Yeah, I think you found a group, and it was called like Storm Chasers 2000, Some, just to put the, the yeah. year mark yeah. on it. And there were just a couple of guys, a couple of like private storm chasers that had people come along and there was maybe three other people in the van with us. And there, just... there was one lady there that was trying to cure her fear of lightning. Yes. And then there was two British guys. When you do a trip like that, you meet random people that you would never, ever run into. And it really was an adventure because you were chasing storms. So it's not the only itinerary we had was flying into the Denver airport and out of it. Right. Other than that, we just followed the storm cells on their technology in the van, and we ended up in Nebraska some days. We ended up in South Dakota. Yeah, I know. We were kind of all over the place and sleeping in the most random places and eating in weird places. And, I mean, it's yeah. actually thinking about it, it's kind of crazy that you that we did that. <laughs> Was that with the, with the testicle festival? Yes. yes. <laughs> Yes. That was the test. Yes. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to bring that up. But, yeah. But thanks for remembering that. Censor that. So we, we, were, we, were, we were in a restaurant and this family 
was across from us, and he, the father was wearing a T-shirt that said Testicle Festival. And I turned to Jordy, and I said, I have to go ask him <laughs> what that is. So my, my philosophy was, why read about it when you, if you have the means and the money to, to be able to do it, even if you do it on a budget? Like I just went, I just got back from Iceland. I, my room was $35 a night. I brought my own food, and the airfare was $320. So it's like, to me, that's a no-brainer. And you stayed in a sort of like hostel-like I, it setting. It was a so hostel. you were sharing a room. With six people. Which is something that I did when I was graduating from college and traveling through Europe, but you decided to do it now. And It, w- it was great, and I got along with them all well. I mean, we, we hung out and we talked, and I don't think they minded that I was old enough to be their mom. <laughs> <laughs> How do you think your traveling has changed since we've kind of grown up and we a lot of you know the three of us take our own trips a lot daddy's not around anymore there's not a lot of we really don't have big family trips anymore and you're going on a lot more adventures solo yeah so how has the travel experience changed for you that that was the biggest adjustment just starting to travel completely by myself Mm -hmm. and um I decided that I wasn't going to let being alone stop me from going to do the things that I want to do. And I, I haven't regretted any of the trips. And for the trip that you have coming up for Mother's Day, yeah, the inspiration was what, Willie Nelson concert? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> kind of embarrassed to, to say that, but, but yes. <laughs> Tell me why you're no, I just like, it's, I, I love Willie Nelson, and he's just turned 86. And I, he, he was on one of my bucket lists of being able to hear him sing live. And I t- booked a trip to Reno, and I'm going by myself. What travel dreams do you have for all of us going forward, all, your three daughters? I, I hope that you won't learn all of your information from, like, history books. I want you to be able to say, I was there. I walked to that place. I touched that place. I, I ate the food there. I want you to, like, absorb the world. And, and try to experience it as much as you possibly can. Again, within reason, not dangerous places, you know. I don't want you to go camping in the wilderness with just a knife, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as long as it's like... I a, guess now is not the time to tell you that I signed up for Naked and Afraid. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> are there places that are still on your bucket list? Absolutely. <laughs> Pretty much everywhere. I ha- you know, I have that big map in my kitchen. As soon as the whole thing's filled with pins. The whole thing. The whole thing. <laughs> That's my goal. We hope you enjoyed this episode. For more information on this podcast, our live tapings, meetups, trips to Columbia, and more, just head to womenwhotravel.com. You can find me at Oh Hey There Mayor on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find Lale at Lale Hannah on Instagram. Talk to you next week. You come to the New Yorker Radio Hour for conversations that go deeper with people you really want to hear from, whether it's Bruce Springsteen or Questlove or Olivia Rodrigo, Liz Cheney, or the godfather of artificial intelligence, Jeffrey Hinton, or some of my extraordinarily well-informed colleagues at The New Yorker. So join us every week on The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name. 
where every revelation brings us closer to the truth.